Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Radical Candor Podcast. I am Kim Scott, co-founder of Radical Candor and Just Work. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor Podcast. And first of all, let's welcome Kim back to the show. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And thank you all for giving me the opportunity to take a full two-week vacation. I want to take, this is not what this podcast is about, but I want to take a moment to extol the virtues of a two-week vacation, at least for me. I recognize that everyone is different. But here's my experience with taking two weeks instead of one one week or even 10 days. Two full weeks, which is really more than 14 days because you get a weekend on either end. It, you, in the first week, you actually clear the cruff out of your brain because you, you're not really on vacation if you go for only one week because you're still thinking about work all the time. So finally, you clear all the work, anxiety, and stress out of your brain, and you really only get the second week of vacation on a two-week vacation, which means if you take a one-week vacation, you really don't get to go on vacation because work is still with you. That's my PSA for a two-week vacation. Brandy, maybe we can make this a follow-up episode, which is how to clear the cruff. <laughs> and also, what are the like origins that. of the word cruff? cruff. I am I, intrigued. I, I, don't, I, I have a feeling. I don't want to know. The I, have, I have a terrible, have a terrible feeling. I have a maybe bad feeling. I sometimes, have a terrible feeling about that. Sometimes I use words I shouldn't use, but words matter. This so is how we learn. This is how we learn. We're clearing the cruff. The other thing I'll say about the two-week vacation is that when you get back, you actually do better work. So not only is it better for you, it's better for your work. When As soon as I got back, Trier and I did a a Just Work workshop together, and she said, I've never seen you so on. And so anyway, it's noticeable. I think there are benefits, many benefits to the two-week That's That's so great. And just to be clear, that's Trier Bryant from Just Work, your co-founder and CEO. Yes. Wonderful. All right, Jason, any thoughts before we move into the meat of the podcast on the merits of the two-week vacation? No, I'll I'll only add that I did a quick... Google of the word cruft. And it, <laughs> how, how concerned are we? We're, we're not that concerned. It, the, according to Wikipedia, the origins are related to a particular club at MIT. Um, <laughs> oh, and it's cruff. Not is t, it with not an F or a T? No, there's, a, there's a T at the end. It's oh, clear, okay, clearing out the cruft. Okay. Um, no. Anyway, right. uh, it's not entirely certain that that it where it was de- derived, but some, something about Boston, basically. I think it's salt. And, when I think of cruff, I think of salt and barnacles, but <laughs> that could be wrong. <laughs> I think that's a good enough. That's a good enough image. <laughs> salt and barnacles in your brain need to be cleared out. They need to be period- periodically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, folks, thanks for joining us. We've had a really rich conversation about the origins of the word cruft. Uh, We also actually do have some hopefully even more meaningful content, which is about practicing upwards feedback. We get so many questions about how can I practice radical candor with my boss? And the thing is, it can be really daunting and potentially a little risky to actually practice radical candor with your boss. But it is such an important skill because if you can share radically candid feedback or guidance, what we prefer to say with your boss, we find you'll have a much stronger working relationship. You'll actually enjoy your work more and you'll be able to do better work together. So Kim, let's get started into exploring why 
is it so difficult for people to give their bosses feedback, especially criticism? Yeah. I mean, I I think that we're afraid. We tend to be often afraid that our boss, if we give them a little criticism, will punish us or even fire us. I think I'm just going to put that on the table. But I will say one of the things that is interesting since, since we've been doing these radical candor talks and workshops and podcasts and since the book came out, I've had so many bosses write to me that they're afraid, they're even more afraid to give their employees feedback than their their employees are afraid to give them feedback. At least that's their perception. I'm not sure that's actually true, but I feel I want to, I want to share with you something my mom used to say to me when we were like hiking and there'd be a snake and I was terrified of the snake. And she would look at me, not that I'm saying your boss is a snake, but she would look at me and she would say, Kim, that snake is even more afraid of you than you are of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to reassure you that the fear maybe goes a little bit both ways. At the same time, I want to acknowledge the power in difference because it's real. I gave a radical candor talk one time and somebody tweeted at me afterwards, tried radical candor on my boss, got fired. And I thought, oh no, I'm so sorry. You know, I know a lot of people maybe. And he said, it's all right. I've already got another job. I'm actually (laughs) better off. So I want to acknowledge and just put on the table the fear. There's a power in difference. Uh, There's a power imbalance and we're not indifferent to the power imbalance. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're afraid. And that's natural to be afraid. At the same time, it's so important to be able to give your boss feedback. Because if you don't, if you can't, then it, it can often take a real toll on you. I once had a boss who I was, I was afraid to give him feedback. And in general, I was afraid of him. And he was so belittling to me. I actually, as I worked for him, I shrank half an inch. And I am barely five feet tall. I did not have half an inch to give to this. And this is like a true fact. My, my, I went to my annual uh, physical. My doctor couldn't believe it. She said, do you really need this job? Like, you got to get away from this. You can't afford to be shrinking at age 30. Part of the reason to give your boss feedback is because when you don't, it can take a real toll on you. And I think we're so aware of the risks of getting fired or getting penalized by our boss that we forget to calculate the risks, the toll that it takes, that our silence can take on us. So I want to encourage people to figure out how to speak up uh, in a way that's not too dangerous. Jason, I bet you have some more thoughts on this. I'll add a little bit more sort of empathy building for for the bosses out there, which is when I talk to managers and executives uh, across industries, most of them are living in feedback deserts, meaning they're not getting, they feel like they're not getting enough feedback. And the question that they're asking you really often is, how can I get the feedback that I need in order to be successful? And so it's this interesting thing where we, we sort of have two people standing on opposite sides of what seems like a very wide and difficult to cross river, right? One yeah. person is afraid to cross to the other side and the other person's feeling very lonely on their side of the river. But in my mind, this is all about finding ways to build bridges. And I think the most efficient way to build bridges is sort of from both sides, right? Like we we can't rely solely on you giving feedback to your boss. We also need to rely on bosses soliciting feedback effectively from their team members. But I even think there's a case where 
you know, several cases where I got to have more in-depth conversations with people where they were very diligently soliciting feedback and they still weren't getting any. And a lot of it boiled down to people still being afraid to share the feedback, even though that person had demonstrated some openness to it, et cetera. So it's worth recognizing that there's the potential win-win and potentially reduce the harm that's done to you by being silent and you increase the benefit to your boss who may be actually really interested in your perspective. But that's not the side of it that we tend to think about. And for a good reason, I think human beings have a negativity bias because it it helps us both developmentally and evolutionarily, like being aware of the, you know, the don't touch the hot stove. I think those kinds of awarenesses help our survival. And at the same time, I think we're maybe overtuned or over index on the so- sort of social risks. We perceive them to be greater than they actually are in many cases. Yeah. Here's the problem. Not in every yeah. case. Yeah. Sometimes it has disastrous consequences. And so there, I don't think it is entirely unreasonable for someone to say, I don't feel comfortable doing it. I just don't necessarily think that person is taking into account all of the costs and potential benefits of that conversation. Yeah, I think it's, it's as you say, maybe we should do another podcast on how bosses can lay their power down. One of the things that uh, that is fundamental to radical candor is that we want to build a relationship. And there are few things more damaging to a relationship than a power imbalance. Yep. And part of the power imbalance has got to be the boss laying the power down. But you, if you happen to be the employee, you can also pick your power up. Power is bad. So you can pick your agency <laughs> up. Uh, but so that's what this podcast is really about is how yeah. to pick your agency up. Yep. Well, so Kim, kind of building on that idea of since this is targeted really more for folks needing to give upwards feedback. And by the way, these folks could also be managers themselves needing to give feedback to their managers. One of the things that we talk about and really coming from your book, which was really oriented towards managers and laying the power down, was through this order of operations. In other words, that we start by soliciting feedback, by getting it, showing that we're you know willing to take it before we start dishing it out. So when you think about sort of picking up your agency from the perspective of someone trying to give upwards feedback or develop that relationship, build the bridge in the desert, how do you think the order of operation fits from the other side of the street, from the individual contributor's perspective? It's actually the same. I think you still need to start by soliciting feedback, no matter where you are in the power equation. I think especially if you are working for someone else, it's particularly important for you to understand their point of view about your performance, about how you're doing. Because then you're going to want, if, if you have that context, it's, it's also, by the way, important to understand not only their perspective about you and your performance, just in general, their perspective. Very often, when you are the employee, you have deeper knowledge over your area than your boss does, but your boss has broader context. So very often, they might be making a decision or doing something that doesn't take into account all of your knowledge, but does take into account a broader picture. And you want to try to make sure that you understand not only your boss's perspective on how you are doing, but also what your boss's priorities are, which are, are mm-hmm. by definition going to be slightly different from your priorities. And that's okay. That, But if we don't understand the other person's perspectives and priorities, then it's very easy to go into a conversation with your boss falling prey to the fundamental attribution error. Uh, which is, you know, you're an asshole. Uh, this is why you're doing this terrible thing, because you're an asshole. I used to feel sometimes 
when I first became um, a leader that there were days when I felt like I was projection screen for everyone's unresolved authority issues. Uh, I hadn't done anything so dramatically terrible, at least from my perspective, and yet I had enraged people. And it was my job to understand, <laughs> to, to get curious, not furious about their rage. But I think also it can be helpful for you as the employee to make sure that you understand your boss's perspective on stuff. And that's part of the importance of soliciting feedback. It doesn't mean you have to take like a month of soliciting feedback, but make sure you're doing that on a regular basis. So that's order of operations number two. The next thing to do is is to think about giving it, in particular, giving praise. Uh, You want to focus on the good Mm -hmm. stuff. I had a friend who went to work for this guy who was known as the biggest jerk on Wall Street, which was saying something given Wall Street's reputation. And so she was a little nervous about this new boss that she had. And so she adopted this mantra, there is only love. And what she meant by that was not that she was never going to offer her boss criticism, but that she was not going to say anything bad about him behind his back to anyone, not even her own husband. She was going to take the time to give voice to the things she appreciated about working with him. But when she had a problem, she would go directly to him, which brings us to, you know, (laughs) giving also criticism, not only praise, and giving it directly, sharing it directly. And then you need to gauge how it's landing mm-hmm. for the other person. It's You don't want to go in prepared to give this monologue. You want to go in prepared to have a conversation. So that's kind of order of operations from my perspective. Yeah, I'm really curious, Jason, from your perspective, and we'll get into the details on how to actually prepare and give your criticism to your boss. But before you do, Jason, any other thoughts from your perspective on this idea of claiming your agency as the individual contributor, working through the desert, how to move through the order of operations to build on what Kim was saying? No, I have noticed a pattern that when things are going really badly, like I tend to get more feedback (laughs) <laughs> than when things are, are going moderately badly uh, <laughs> on the rare occasions when they're going well. <laughs> and so there's an interesting thing that happens, which is in order for people to sort of push through that discomfort, the, uh, things have to often be going really, really poorly, right? In order for to have the energy to push through that discomfort. And so then you're often in the unenviable situation if you run in focusing on the things that are going wrong of piling on to an already <laughs> difficult situation. <laughs> like you're the fifth person that day who's now come to their boss to say like, hey, that you know, product launch was a real disaster and here are all the things that went wrong with it. Which is why the sort of think the hygiene of being curious about your boss's perspective, sharing things that are going well, um, sharing small things that, that could be better it is so important because we don't want to blow out of proportion when things go wrong. And nor do you want your boss to blow things out of proportion when things go wrong, right? You don't want the, the reverse. You don't want to be true either, which is the only time you hear from your boss is when things are, have gone terribly wrong. And so when Kim says a relationship, she means a real human relationship where we actually recognize the, what each other are interested in, what we value, what we're working on, where we're being successful, where we could be doing better. Like those types of things. That, that's what a supportive, positive, supportive human relationship looks like inside and outside of work, right? I, I could have been describing a relationship with your significant other and use the same words that like a really supportive relationship with a significant other is where we see each other as real human beings. We talk about what matters to us. We help and reinforce the things that are going well. And we support people when things aren't going well. We, we help them through that. And I think that that 
for some people is a weird idea. I think there are people who hold the belief that keeping your boss at arm's length is like totally fine. Like they're your boss. There's a separation there. And, and that to your point, Kim, about power is how power corrupts. It doesn't only corrupt, like it can make the person in the position of power do things they wouldn't normally do to act crappier than they normally would. And it can make the person without the, the power in that relationship keep that person at arm's length, not see them as a whole human being, and instead to see them as the representation of that power. Or or even to be a real jerk to their boss. I mean, I've coached yep. so many Absolutely. people who, when I point out to them that they have this wonderful relationship with their team, with the people who work for them, and then I'll notice that they do something incredibly, and I've done, I mean, I, I noticed this because I've done it myself. I tell the story about sending this email to my boss's boss's boss, Google, saying, Larry claims he wants to organize the world's information, but if it'll make us a buck, you know, he'll create clutter sites. Like, I never would send an email like that to one of my employees and 30 other people. And yet I felt totally free Mm -hmm. to do that to my boss's boss's boss. And then when I thought about it, I behaved even worse. I behaved sort of politically. Somebody pointed out, said, Kim, why did you do that? That was really obnoxious. And I thought, gosh, what? That was obnoxious. Why did I do that? And then I, the next time I saw... Larry, I said to him, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm wrong. But I didn't think that I was wrong. I didn't think, I mean, I was wrong as it turned out, but I didn't know that at the time. (laughs) I was lying. And he could tell I was lying. And that didn't help the situation either. I, and, and again, that's also not something I would have done to one of my employees. Yeah. And so yeah. I think the more we can treat, uh, assuming that you treat your employees well, uh, mm-hmm. that you treat your boss with the same sort of consideration that you would treat your employees, it's important just to remember like, that your boss has a job to do, but your boss is not your superior. All the words and language that we use yeah. around this are hierarch- hierarchical. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult to write a book about this because I hate the word boss. I hate the word manager. I hate the word leader. Like, I don't know what to say. But it is really important. Cruft. You think yeah, Cruft. Person. Yeah. <laughs> this is a person who has a job to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I just to, to build on what we were talking about, and Jason, especially around this idea of, you know, that you were only getting feedback when it was sort of these big ticket items. So one of the things, Kim, that has really stuck with me that you've said, which is that like any relationship, and Jason was talking about these are human relationships. And Kim, this is what you're just saying. Human to human relationships leave, you know, three or four unimportant things unsaid. And so I think what's really interesting, there was a recent article in the Harvard Business Review about how to give negative feedback to your boss. And one of the first steps was about really checking in with yourself and asking yourself this question, like, are you making a mountain out of a molehill? Is this just like a one-off event or is there a pattern? And so I'm really curious to hear from you all, how do you discern, is this the mountain? Is this the molehill? How do I not get into the habit of like, I only go for the mountains? I think one uh, note of caution I would offer about that HBR article is that sometimes you you might use that question to convince yourself not to give the feed. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's no big mm-hmm. deal. And if it's bugging you, it does matter. It is, you know, but at the same time, I think the thing that I like about that question is you want to ask yourself, am I going into this conversation falling prey to the fundamental attribution error? Like, am I going into this conversation projecting all my unresolved (laughs) issues with, you know, (laughs) my boss is not my parent. My boss is not this terrible teacher I had when I was in fifth grade. Uh, My my boss is this person who has done this thing. Like, there, there was one time when I 
And, and it's true, the feedback that my employee was giving me was absolutely accurate. I tend to change, I would change everything every five minutes if I could. So we had- We have no with, idea what you're talking well, about. <laughs> you all know this. <laughs> Drives my editor crazy. He's like, you got to stop changing this book. We're publishing it now. <laughs> we had come up with a tagline for the company and- I woke up in the middle of the night and I had a better idea. I had a better tagline for the company. And I went in and I told, I was all excited about my good new idea, you know, and I went in and I told the person who was leading marketing this, my bright new idea. And she started screaming and yelling, I already ordered the (laughs) t-shirts. Could have been better at understanding the feedback that I'd been getting. I'm changing everything. And and by the way, I still wear those t-shirts when I sleep, they're still <laughs> to remind myself not to change everything. Not that it's done any good. I still want to change everything every five <laughs> minutes. But to remind myself of the cost that that can put on people around me. I would only add that answering the question, why does this matter to me? Or why is this bothering for yourself, for your own sake, mm-hmm. can be a really good step to take because often we feel quite frustrated. We have an immediate emotion, negative emotional reaction to something that happens. And it's often too short of a trip between that reaction and the words that come out of our mouths. Like we don't quite take enough time to answer that question because sometimes what I realize is like I'm mad at somebody else for saying something because not because of what they said or how they said it, because, but because I'm embarrassed by what mm-hmm. it reveals about me. It made me look bad. And so it's good to take that moment to say like, is this really about them? Is it something that they did that I want to make them aware of? And sometimes it's not so much at that point, like I may even still have a conversation with that person and say, hey, when you said this, like I had this really strong reaction. I realized it was because I was embarrassed, like because I felt Mm -hmm. like I didn't. And so there's still potential for a, a conversation, even when you realize it's not feedback anymore. But it might be worth sharing that you had this reaction so the other person understands what was going on for you in that moment. But when it turns into feedback, when it turns into an observation about their behavior, at least then you can say you can help them understand the impact that it had, right? That's really what the question, why does this matter to me, is helping Mm -hmm. to answer is like what was not just what happened, but why why did it matter? What was the impact? I will say also the most common reason why I tend to give feedback to my bosses in a way that is, shall we say, unmeasured uh, or not what I would have wished in retrospect is that I kept telling myself that something that was bothering me was just a molehill. Oh, it's no big deal. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. say anything. I don't say anything. Mm-hmm. It's what I, what I call the silence and rage cycle. And so the more silent I am, the more mad I get. And by the time I finally say something, you know, I explode in a way that's not, not maximally productive. And so this is one of the dangers, I think, of ruinous empathy, is that sometimes the hero's journey from ruinous empathy to obnoxious aggression is number of molehills has actually become a mountain in your mind now. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is to the other person a molehill is to you legitimately a mountain because you've remained silent about. So it's, I think, one of the reasons why you want to offer feedback on a regular basis about little things. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think, Jason, what you shared is such a helpful guidance when we think about it may technically be a molehill, but for you, it's important because you had this reaction and you're actually, by sharing that, you're building the relationship. So it feels like by that sharing, you're minimizing sort of the tendency for it to become a mountain. So there could be some real value in that. And you're not blaming the other person. You're simply saying what that brought up for 
for you. And so you're A, building the relationship and B, Kim would say sort of the radical candor hygiene. I'd love to get feedback about small things that are relatively easy to fix. (laughs) Most of the time I'm getting feedback about really complicated things that are going to be very hard to fix. We can tend to think of it as as nitpicking, but if it is really, if if you felt like it was really problematic and, and it's a small fix, like often this type of feedback, I put, there's a whole category of like the language we use. Like sometimes the way we say something imparts a meaning that we don't intend. So we say something about the schedule and we're like, uh, and I might say, oh, you know, the quality assurance team uh, is really behind schedule. And so we're going to slip the date, blah, blah, blah. And I don't offer additional context. Quality assurance oh, person. I'm already, I'm already feeling terrible. I'm on, I'm yeah. feeling like I'm on the quality assurance team and I've just been yeah. thrown under a bus. <laughs> Right. And so, and so when that person comes to me and says, you know, they came to me right afterward and said, Hey, the way that you said that made it sound like we weren't doing our job. When in fact, what happened was this vendor was that we were relying on was really late. And as that, that's what slipped the whole schedule. Well, now I have an opportunity to correct it. It's really easy in the moment to correct it, to go Mm -hmm. back and say, Hey, I failed to give some context. It's really important that everybody knows this is what happened. But if like you wait, like I do something again, sort of similar. Now it's easier for you to imagine like, Oh, Jason doesn't actually care or doesn't think quality assurance is doing a good job when really it's my failure in the moment to communicate as clearly as I wanted to. So as a boss, as a peer, as a team member, I'm, I much prefer those like, hey, quick in the moment. I'm not sure mm-hmm. you realize, but this is how I perceive that thing. Like that's a much better conversation for me to be a part of. Uh, on the receiving end of, then the you're a terrible person because you you don't you don't recognize you, you don't the context. You. <laughs> yeah, important point that Jason was making just there is that you want to do it in the moment. If you're going to offer your boss criticism, you want to do it immediately. You want to do it right away. You don't want to save it up for your one-on-one. You want to pick up the phone right after the meeting and call the boss. So so once again, I mean, in an ideal world, in an ideal, if you're furious, you may want to wait. But if you yourself are not too angry and your boss doesn't seem like they're in a mood where they'll fly off the handle, it's much better to do things right away. Because then you can, right after the meeting, pick up the phone, call your boss, tell your boss the thing. And it's it's a two-minute conversation. Mm -hmm. This is what Jason meant when he was talking about routine maintenance, or maybe you said it, Amy. But you want to have these short, impromptu, two-minute conversations in an ideal world so that you can avoid the bigger, longer, harder conversations that you might have to have if you're not doing that routine maintenance. So in an ideal world, it's like brushing and flossing, not like a root canal. Now, what happens if you haven't been brushing and flossing and you need to have a root canal? Well, we can talk about that too, because that happens sometimes. Yeah. And I I think that would actually be really helpful for folks that are just like, oh yeah, I've got sort of this, you know, one of the things that Kim, people love hearing about the phrase of just like you might have technical debt, you might have feedback debt. So you might have yeah. a whole bunch of molehills that have been piling up yeah, now you got that you now need to get to, to your boss about. So it might be helpful just to walk through. First of all, I've, I've set up this meeting with my boss, right? We have this meeting. I know I want to share some criticism. Just first of all, what's the mindset that you want to go into this, this meeting with? I think of avoiding the, the fundamental attribution error that this is because they're a bad person. And so another way to say that, some people say that as assuming positive intent. 
Kim's phrase is much better than that one, which is don't assume they're a terrible person and that's why they're doing it is different than assuming that they have a positive intent. <laughs> the truth is often in the middle of those things, right? Sometimes like the maybe the, you know, if it was me, like maybe I was on edge. Maybe I was feeling annoyed that quality assurance <laughs> couldn't get that vendor to, to deliver. And so maybe at the subconscious level, what came out was something that was reflecting what was going on for me at a subconscious level. But I think when we go in assuming that the person intended to harm, that can put us in a very defensive posture, which makes it much more likely that what we say is going to come across as an accusation as opposed to an observation and some input on how that how we reacted to what we observed, the impact that it had. Because that's really what you want. You want to approach this co this conversation by recognizing that you're sharing a perspective with another real human being and that what you imagine, the darkest motivations that they, that they could have, the thing that's going on in your imagination is probably not what's happening. And if you go in with that sort of curiosity about, hey, here's what I observed, this is the impact of it. I want to understand how did this happen and how do we fix it? That's the mindset that I would I would try to adopt when approaching a conversation with pretty much anybody, but especially my boss, because as Kim said, they often your boss often has a lot more context than you do. And so you're seeing a very narrow slice of what is going on. There's a lot that I could learn from that conversation if I take that attitude. So in other words, you go into the conversation being humble, uh, not, not humiliated, but being open to another perspective. You want to state your intention to be helpful. You want to have these conversations as often as possible, as quickly as so immediately. In the before times, you wanted to do it in person. In the now times, you want to do it at the very least synchronously. And you want to be conscious of whether you want this to be a video call or a phone call. There's a lot of research that indicates, which Jason can, or Amy, you all, I think, are more close to this research. But it shows that we often listen better when we're on the phone and we're just hearing somebody than, we're, than when we're even face-to-face -face or on on a video call. You want to offer sort of criticism as a general rule in private, unless your boss has explicitly, which they should do, but they may not have done, invited you to, to criticize them in public. But you want to, in general, do it in private. And you don't want to make it about the person's personality. That's the fun, avoiding the fundamental attribution error. So you want to share the context, the observation, and the result, or use the SBI model situation behavior impact. So as my children say to me, I'm the least hip person on the planet. But if an acronym helps you, it's hip. It's humble, helpful, in person, immediately, or you know, in person slash synchronously, in private and not about personality. So two H's, two I's, two P's. Hip, hip, hip. Hooray. So Kim, thank you so much for that. One part I want to check in both with you and Jason, do you like the idea of someone starting this conversation by saying, hey, is it okay if we talk about last week's team meeting? Or like, is it okay if we talk about this? That sort of checking even for proceeding, um, if they're if they're open to hearing, like is now a good time what do you think of those sorts of opening questions? Again, this is a relationship, so it depends on the person who you're talking to. But if you're concerned that the person may not be open to it, I think asking is a good idea. If it makes you feel more confident to ask, I think it's a great idea. What I learned as a manager was that people who have preferences here, like there are people who prefer to be asked ahead. One thing that I feel like I'm learning leading a fully remote team, especially in in a global pandemic, is that saying, hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? Building that hygiene 
around not just when things are going wrong, but like even just to check in for a few yeah, minutes. It's uh, good this was how you lost your taste for coffee, right? Because yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I've told that I've told that story yeah. before, but like I, I I think this idea of building the muscle of creating a moment of synchronicity in a world that is very asynchronous right right now is really quite powerful. And I think what we're recognizing here is if you're in the situation where you're sort of in a feedback desert or you have lots of feedback data, however you want to think about it, it can feel really daunting to do that. You know what I mean? It can feel really daunting mm-hmm. to say, do you have a do you have a few minutes? It feels like you have to have this long sort of sit down conversation in order to, to start unpacking that. But one of the ways that when I've been coaching people who have a more tense relationship with their boss will say, why not start with something small? You don't have to solve the biggest problem that you have. Like a good way in might be to pick a smaller thing and see how that goes. Because again, it's not just about the sort of transactional nature of this current, the the issue that's on your plate. You're trying to build that relationship, right? And so observing the things that are going well, hearing their perspective, but then as you start to offer differing perspectives, like picking something that feels smaller, more immediate, easier to talk about can also Mm -hmm. help you build confidence. I love that. And I think even just a sort of mental reframe from transactional, like it's about this thing versus relationship building. And so there's sort of these deposits in the relationship bank through these conversations. The thing that came up for me, Jason, as you were saying that with like, if they only come to me on these really big issues, is just thinking about, you know, with pets and, you know, driving to the vet. If every time you put your dog in the car, you're going to the vet, like the dog's not going to love going in the car, right? Yep. So we we need to mix things, mix things up a little bit. When we get into how we actually share share our perspective, how we share both criticism and praise. The the model that we use has been adapted from the Center for Creative Leadership, the SBI model you might be familiar with. We call it core context, observation, result, next steps. We intentionally made it an E, not an N, because then we get to use corny jokes. And by the way, I was leading a workshop yesterday and the chat was outstanding. There was all sorts of, you know, this is an amazing reference, M-A-I-Z-E. They said, this is gold. <laughs> I um, like corn. It was I like, like corn. We li- we, yeah. <laughs> I, well, but it's a good conversation. Uh, it's an, a good engagement tool. So in any case, back to, you know, how core or corn would play out if, if you folks listen to the episode where Jay Jason sent me a message in Slack and he wanted to set up our one-on-one that week because he had thoughts and invariably that sent me into a bit of a tailspin. And so I just thought it might be helpful to walk through what my process was and how I used the core or corn model. I got really clear on what I wanted to say, why I wanted to say it. And it was not in, in terms of sort of the mountain molehill like measurement, it was not a mountain, but it did have an impact on my emotional state. And actually, Jason, to your point about how that felt, like that was really what I wanted to bring to that conversation with you, Jason. So, you know, I would use something like in the context, it'd be Jason, you set up our one-on-one meeting this week. That would be the context, the observation you wrote in Slack. Let's be sure to meet this week to discuss the project. I have thoughts. So the observation is just, it's neutral. It's like a journalist. It's, you know, there was not a, hopefully there wasn't a judgment there. And as a result, you know, Jason, I felt like it was important for you to know that when I read, I have thoughts, it landed to me like I was doing a terrible job. And I'm confident that wasn't what you meant, but I just felt like it was important, you know, that that was really disheartening. And in terms of next steps, I I remember we talked about, I said, you know, how about if you said something like, hey, let's find some time this, this week to check in on the project. I'd love to hear how it's going, see how I can help, which by the way, was exactly what you did. And so it, of course, you know, I felt so comfortable saying this to you. We have this relationship 
And, you know, we we laughed. I feel like we got even closer. And then you mentioned how you'd actually edited the message multiple times. But yes. I think it's, I, you know, hopefully that's an instructive story. But I, I wonder what about the folks that maybe don't work with someone like you or who's actually <laughs> teaching radical candor? How would they approach something like that? By the way, can I just jump in on that story yeah, before please. he answers? I think the the other great thing about you doing it right away, sending, s- telling him, giving him the feedback right away, is that you didn't have to spend the next three days worried, and that's what you know. That's good for you, for <laughs> but it's also good for what I mean. Jason didn't want you to waste your emotional energy. Where, you know, it's it's it was like good for it was. But you got better results. You're a happier person. Like it's all win 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 when we address this stuff right away, and it's kind of lose 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 when we don't. Even though it's hard to do. Like, yeah. I don't know if it was as immediate as it could have been, but it was definitely... <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was sort of a mix of immediate and mindfulness practice. Yeah, okay. Um, yes. Jason, um, what were you, you going to reflect on? Thanks, Kim. Uh, I was only going to say that it's hard for everybody to integrate feedback. There's no like magical thing that happens to you when you get a role you get a role as a manager that makes it easier for you to process feedback than it does for somebody else. The biggest difference as a manager is if you're doing your job right, you have more practice. You have more at bats, right? Like that's that's the idea. It's like mm-hmm. you're, you your additional comfort comes from more exposure and experience, not because you have some magical new ability. Recognizing that, and Kim's point about gauging how it's landing for somebody, mm-hmm. is like it can be very tempting when your boss, you know, pauses to think about something or seems upset to like equivocate or <laughs> to take it back or to do one of these other things. And I think if you think of it as a human relationship, like a thing that you can do is like you can be with somebody else's discomfort. Like that is a human thing that you can do. If like somebody else is uncomfortable, you can, you can create, you can show them support by sitting with them in that, in that discomfort and saying, you know, maybe you offer, I'm willing to answer any questions that you might have or, I'm curious, like how you're reacting to this or what's coming up for you. Like, I think you can show the same sort of care that you would show if this was a peer or someone who reported to you, depending on what you're giving feedback on and depending on the day of the week and whatever's going on, you may have different levels of emotional sort of capacity or energy for doing this. But I think if I was trying to increase my chances of success, I would try to set it up in a way that I do. I did create some of that energy for myself. Like I said, look, I'm going to give this, share this perspective, and then I'm going to create a a moment of support to make sure that the other person really has a chance to hear me and I have a chance to hear that. I think, yeah, giving your giving your boss the opportunity to do the right thing and also to be a little tolerant of the fact that they're a human being and they may not respond well to your feedback immediately. They may get a little defensive, not because they're an asshole, but because they're a human being and People tend to get a little defensive when they get, as long as they're not abusing their power as your boss, which can happen. By the way, one of the most important things, I I think, for finding the wherewithal to overcome the reluctance to give your boss feedback is to make sure you know where the the exit nearest you is located, right? Kim, I was going to ask about that, like, as you reflect, because you started off by talking about the boss who was belittling you and you literally shrunk, and that was a while ago, and you wrote the book and you've been out in the world, like what advice would you give yourself now? And maybe it's different now because the world is hopefully a bit different, but how would you think about that dynamic if it were happening today? I, th- I was far more silent in that situation than I needed to be. 
On the other hand, I have some compassion for the reasons why I was silent. I had some stock that was vesting and I had, you know, zero money in my, or not very close to zero money in my bank account. And the stock represented like a year's worth of salary. And that was the money that I was going to use to quit and write my first novel maybe more personal information than you needed to know. But I think that we often have various reasons why we are reluctant to speak up. And so those were my reasons in that case, why I was reluctant to speak up. In retrospect, and this is what I tell people often, and the advice I would give myself looking back is, I had one foot out the door already. I was planning to quit. There was very little chance that that he was going to fire me, actually. He really needed me to get done what I was doing. So if I had realized that I had more leverage in the situation than I thought I had, I, you know, maybe I could have stayed longer. Um, maybe, maybe I could have made it work. Maybe not. I don't know. It was interesting. I, I wound up bumping into that boss a decade later and having a glass of wine with him and I realized he wasn't quite the horrible person who I had <laughs> painted him <laughs> to be. Uh, and, and I probably could have, I realized, uh, had, a, had some conversations with him. But I think very often we feel powerless, and then that makes us behave in a way that robs us of our own agency. At least that's what mm-hmm. happened to me in that situation. Thank you for sharing. I think folks can really resonate with that of, you know, there's a lot going on under the surface and when it comes to boss, manager, the person signing our paycheck or salary, you know, these very sort of root security needs that we all have, especially now. So just bringing that into into the conversation. Before we close, uh, I just want to bring in the idea of what we were talking about of hopefully these are these one or two minute conversations. There's the frequency, it's the you know, flossing and brushing rather than the root canal. But if you do have one of those tougher conversations, we encourage you go ahead and practice it with a friend, with a colleague, with a mentor. One of the things that people love so much about our workshops is that they get a chance to practice and they get a chance to actually have a a coach, a third person there observing them, seeing what's working well. It's another really great way to help manage any emotion, frustration you might have so that by the time you have the conversation, you're super clear on why you're having it. Hopefully it can build some more empathy for the other person and their perspective as well. So encourage you to practice it. Anything else before we move on to our tips? I think the other thing that helps me when I'm going into a big conversation that I am kind of dreading is to think about what are the three or four things that I really want to make sure I say to this person. And I have a one word sort of shorthand for each of those three or four things. And I wrote those words on a post-it in a bullet list and stick it in my pocket, not because I'm going to forget them, but because having them in my pocket will make it much less likely that I wimp out and don't say one of them. It's just like a reminder to me that there are some things I, it's a reminder of my intention for the conversation. I I love that. You know, I know one of your phrases is make your listening tangible. Like when you repeat back, oh, whatever yeah. did you say it was, but I love that. It's like make your speaking or make your intention tangible, like actually yeah, have having it in, it your, in like your, little yeah talisman in my pocket. I love Um, that. The other thing that works for someone who I worked with who is really good at giving feedback up, down, and sideways, he said, before I go in to give anyone critical feedback, I pause, I close my eyes, I think about the face of someone who I love. 
you know, and I just bring that person and that helps me go into the conversation with an open heart. I thought that was very, I I never have managed to make that work for me, but I passed that along because I thought it was really beautiful. It is beautiful. All right. Um, And it's actually a nice way to move us into our radical candor checklist, which are tips you can use to start putting radical candor right now into practice. So first of all, approach radical candor with your boss the same way you do with the other people you work with, because your boss is a human too. Start by asking for guidance before giving praise or criticism. Remember, you really want to understand the other person's perspective. You want to understand your boss might have some more context than you do. So seek to understand before you start dishing it. Number two, ask for permission to give guidance. Would it be helpful if I told you what I thought of X or is this a good time now? If your boss says yes, you can start with something small and see how they react. Uh, Start with questions instead of assertions and assume that your your boss is not uh, motivated (laughs) by being a jerk or being evil uh, going into the conversation. Start with a mindset that puts you in a better position to give feedback to a, a person that you care about. So or whose relationship matters to you. You can use the CORE model to deliver your feedback. Remember, CORE stands for Context, Observation, Result, Next Steps. Feel free to consider it CORN if that makes it easier for you. This will help you keep your feedback clear, concise, and action-oriented. And go ahead and take Kim's tip to heart. You can make a little index card or a little note to remind you what exactly you want to say and hold yourself accountable. Finally, as always, radical candor takes practice. Prepare what you want to say and rehearse it with someone who you trust before having the conversation with your boss. For more tips, head to radicalcandor.com backslash podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And of course, do not forget to order Kim's, can we still call it new book? Yeah, Still pretty new. new. Yeah, pretty new. Kim's new book. It's it's purple. I'm seeing it all over the airports. Just work, get shit done, fast and fair. It is available everywhere books are sold. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff. Is produced by our director of content Brandy Neal and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at Radical Candor dot com.